0: Quarter Rest is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can visit our Patreon at patreon.com/slash Quarter Rest Podcast. Check us out on Instagram. The handle is Quarter Rest Pod. Visit our website quarterrestpodcast.com, and you can email me at joe at quarterrestpodcast.com. Keep it classy, folks. We don't want any incidents.
1: Superman never made. Me. Saving the world from Solomon Grundy Sometimes I despair the world will never see another man like him Many, many years ago I wrote that song when I had just finished doing a degree in philosophy and English literature, and it occurred to me that by employing comic book characters I might talk about a subject that was serious and yet not have to appear earnest. And as uh, appearing earnest was a terrible thing in my view during those days, I uh, avoided it at all costs and uh, wrote this next or that last little number. Um, precisely for that reason. So if you can just put all that together in your head and make sense of it, I'd be delighted. I know it certainly made sense for me.
0: Welcome back, folks, to another episode of Quarter Rest with Joe Diego. I've got to stop doing that. We have a great show for you this week. It's an interview with Brad Roberts, the famously deep-voiced singer from Crash Test Dummies. I was a huge Crash Test Dummies fan between the ages of 11 and 13, and I still am. So it was nothing short of a delight to sit down with Brad and be able to talk about his music, his career, and his new adventures with the piano. So please, people, put your hands together and get on your feet for Brad
1: Roberts!
0: Brad Roberts.
1: At this point in my life, I, I really don't listen to music the way I used to. Um, And by the way I used to, I mean like, you know, as a teenager, when I first started listening to music in a serious way, I I would put the headphones on and it would be just like the whole world melted away. And I closed my eyes and that was, you know, all I wanted to do. Now I, uh, I listen to music on speakers and for the most part, it's classical music which I despised for the vast majority of my life. Not despised, but, you know, I really did not actively listen to, particularly symphonic music, which I found bombastic. And then, you know, one day I was listening to, uh, I'm not going to be able to pronounce this right, Mitsuko Uchida. Mitsuko Uchida. That's terrible. I I loathe the idea that I'm mispronouncing her name because she's a, a famous pianist and... I was listening to the radio one day, casually, and she came on and she was playing a sonata by Mozart, and I, I'd always thought of Mozart as the most poncy-sounding music maker of all time, you know, just, <laughs> you know? tum yes, couldn't stand it, and she rendered Mozart so beautifully, and the particular sonata, well, actually, it was the Rondo in A minor, a famous piece that's got this kind of chromatic melody that's just genius, way ahead of its time, just like Mozart generally was. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, It was like a, a light bulb went off in my head, and suddenly classical music was attractive to me. And I was able to even turn to Bach and listen to that and enjoy it, uh, which really took me quite a while. Bach is so dense, you know, that period, oh, yes. counterpoints and now, however, I'm actually learning to play Bach and others on the piano. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I, I've been doing during the whole pandemic. See. Uh, that's the beginning of the invention in C major by Bach that every piano student has to learn at some point. Um, and it's so much easier to listen to Bach when you play him because you get a clearer understanding of what's going on in the music. It makes more sense
0: my wife is a piano player and she studied in France, which is where she's from. And uh, every year she had to play a certain number of Bach pieces. Bach was its own category, its own uh, separate thing. You know, you had to play a Baroque, a classical piece, something more contemporary and a Bach because Bach was held in this exalted kind of place.
1: Yes. And although, you know, uh, he's just a man and all that, not a God. Uh, he was not, nevertheless, a real, you know, genius of sorts. Absolutely. That's a it's a term I don't like to throw around casually, but I think it applies in his case.
0: Well, if you study his music and you and you learn, and I, and I have a little bit, uh, and you look at some of the the sort of hidden elements of his music. I mean, it's filled with like numerology. It's filled with references to things from the Bible it's, it's, and references to Gregorian chant and, and, and the like. It's incredibly sophisticated.
1: <laughs> he spells his own name in one of them, too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I forget how it sounds on the piano. I could play it for you if I, if I was confident I knew. I think it's B flat, A, C, B natural. <laughs> But I might not be right about that.
0: I think that's something like that.
1: Yes, he is notorious for having all that hidden math and symbolism in his music. It really is something else.
0: Yeah, and I mean, maybe not everybody likes it, but you have to, at the very least, appreciate the, the genius and artistry
1: behind it. I think so, too. And I've even heard people say that. I found when I first heard my, that it was just all too mathematical-sounding. And it, it not vested with much emotion, and there were exceptions to that, of course, because Bach has an incredibly melodic pieces. Yep. But, um, anyway, we could talk about Bach all day, and I'd be fine with that. <laughs> <laughs> However, well, I
0: I certainly do want to talk about Bach, and I certainly do want to talk about your adventures with the piano.
1: I initially took piano lessons when I was a little kid, and uh, my first teacher when I was five was a lovely young woman named Carol Myers, the daughter of Wally Myers, who in his day in Winnipeg had an orchestra in Winnipeg, uh, his own like small orchestra, the Wally Myers Orchestra, like, you know, uh, not, a, not an orchestra at all. I'm sorry that I'm misrepresenting the situation. You know, he would have played piano and accordion and had a couple of other players with him. But like A chamber group? Um, Actually, no, they did uh, jazz and swing and modern music for uh, uh, back in the 40s and 50s. Cool. Um, And he continued to have a teaching studio in downtown Winnipeg during the early 70s when I was a boy. Back in the early 70s when I was a boy. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, it would have been the late 60s because I was only five. But then uh, I lost that teacher and went to somebody closer. And that teacher, Mrs. Dick, if you can believe it, her actual name was indeed Mrs. Dick. And she was the worst, man. Like she talked on the phone while she was teaching me. I was like eight years old. I had no idea that this was probably not something my mom would be very happy to hear about.
0: And this was back before everyone was on their phone all the time anyway?
1: Yeah, this is back long before there was such a thing as a cell phone or even the inkling of a cell phone. Right. Uh, you know, it had a cord and a dial, <laughs> all that old school shit. Yeah. And then would have, uh, you know, a ruler in one of her hands and a phone in the other, and she'd just whack me on the knuckles every time I hit a wrong note, <laughs> which just made me scared of <laughs> touching the piano at all and totally spoiled my relationship with it. So I quit. And then when I was uh, 12 years old, I decided I would switch to the guitar. And that I did, and I never looked back until until I got a repetitive stress injury well into my professional career from playing guitar every night on stage. And when you have an acoustic guitar over your shoulders and you're strumming and you're in a standing position, you're really not in a good position at all uh, in terms of well, in terms of the possibility of being injured, and that's exactly what happened in my case. I got a repetitive stress injury that just grew to this enormous knot of muscles in my back. Hmm. And, um, and there's a long story about how I cured that, but um, to make the long story short, I don't, uh, I don't play the guitar anymore. Do you because, miss that? Uh, well, no, actually, I, I, uh, I never thought I would be tired of playing the guitar, but I've actually gotten to the point where I've kind of, I feel like I've got as good as I'm going to be on it, and it doesn't interest me to go any further with it or take it in a different direction, you know, like I could learn to play classical guitar, for example, instead of classical piano, but I, but I really did um, want to learn to play the piano. And um, I just kind of thought it was too late for me, and I realized that that was just stupid and that I should just start. Hmm. So I started about a year ago, and uh, I've had a teacher for about eight months. And it's just amazing. You know, I I always romanticize the idea of coming home after a hard day's work and relaxing by playing the piano, playing the classics, being terribly civilized. and that's finally what I'm getting to the point where I can do. I mean, it's not what I would call relaxing because it, I'm at this learning stage. But um, I do get into a place where uh, if I've been practicing for a good hour solid, I'll start to get um, into a kind of a trance, frankly, mm. and and start to really just you know, be kind of unable to tear myself away from playing the same piece over and over again because it just gets to the point where, you know, addiction is a stupid word, but it's almost like an addiction. It feels like a craving to go and keep playing it again and again. I I don't know if other people experience that when they practice or not. It's almost like um, what I imagine transcendental meditation would be. Hmm. The world falls away and there's just... Well, just you and the piano in, this, in my case. Just you and your meditative pra- meditative practice in the case of meditation.
0: Did you used to get the same feeling when you were learning the guitar early on?
1: Um, I felt quite ecstatic when I got to a certain point with the guitar when I played, yes, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, when I continued to play with Crash and Stummies, I would say that... Uh, Playing playing the electric guitar is especially fun because you don't have to struggle to hear yourself. Main <laughs> you problem of playing an acoustic guitar and in a band where there's a drummer. Yes. Um, and um, you know I I I lo- really enjoyed playing the lead guitar solos that I had written.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and that felt great and fun, but the pain eventually took over it. Yeah. I don't want to get, I don't ever want to be in a position where I'm in that kind of pain again, and I therefore don't want to play the guitar. And not only that, when I went to find the piano teacher, I went out of my way to find somebody who teaches um, a method that I researched called the Taubman method, based on, a, on the work of a music teacher in Brooklyn named Dorothy Taubman. Um, who is, is dead now, but she, um, she uh, pioneered this teaching method based on many, many years of experience um, that included seeing little kids come in that were like prodigies and, and playing pieces that her adults couldn't begin to play. And she, she wondered, like, how can this be? What's going on? Really, what's going on? And hmm. she would do things like put lipstick on the fingertips of these children and have them play and then examine the keys and try and determine if they're striking patterns. I mean, she went into incredible detail. Wow. Um, and eventually, she had enough people that had benefited from her training that they wanted to learn how to teach what she was teaching, and there's a there's an institute now run by a, one, of, one of her main students, and, and I was able to go through that institute and get a teacher here in New York City uh, that teaches that method, and the main reason that I'm using this method is because it, it specifically addresses the issues of repetitive stress injuries and teaches you how to play with and not incur those inju- injuries simply by having good physical form.
0: Is it about posture, or is it about the way the fingers are held, or is it about all of those things?
1: All of those things, and particularly about the way you strike the piano, hmm. how, you, you know, how you get the note to sound. Um, hmm. There's an old school of thought in piano that you'd, you want to isolate your fingers and make them strong and do isolation exercises. This is the exact opposite of what the Taubman approach does. And in fact, those exercises are stupid and painful and they can hurt you, you know, like, and it's, it's counterintuitive. I mean, if you actually, if you do this, put your hand like on a flat surface and lift each of your fingers and you'll notice that like, it gets really hard to lift your fourth finger, for example.
0: Oh yeah. It's very difficult.
1: And that is that's the way that's as the way your body's built. And to try and strengthen that or make that work for you is going against the, the way your body works. So they teach right. you a better way. And instead of just using your fingers in isolation, you use your whole hand and indeed your whole forearm comes into play. And and when you play a note, it's it's done with a combination of rotation, which means that you you know, turn your forearm in the direction of the note that you want to play, um, and, other, and other principles uh, like, for example, in-out, as they call it, which is um, when you if, – if you've got sharps or flats, you need to go in towards them and then out again away from them mm. when you're on the white keys um, because the sharps and flats – are closer you know they're further away from you see so, so the idea is that you walk in towards that area while you're still on the white key so the, by the time you get to a sharp or a flat you're there boom so you don't have to reach for it hmm. all these subtle strategies for getting around the, the keyboard in a nimble way it's quite so you're, kind
0: of, so you're going deep into technique
1: deep deep yeah really very much so. In fact, the way I practice the pieces right now in their earliest stage, it doesn't even sound like music. It just sounds like a technical exercise. But when I get the piece, eventually, you know, it, I can play it in a way I would never have been able to play it otherwise. And in fact, I even went back and played some things that I taught myself before I had a teacher. And I realized, you know, how I'd been doing it long, and how much better I could play them with the technique. So,
0: hmm. so I want to go backwards a little bit in time, sure. if that's all right.
1: Absolutely. I don't uh, think I really care about my interest in classical music. <laughs> oh
0: no, I do believe me. It's actually quite interesting and I, I've never heard of the Taubman technique, but I think it sounds very interesting. Um, I know I've tried playing piano a little bit and my wife has sometimes showed me technique and it's, it's, it's a big instrument, right? It, you really do need to think about how you play it, I think more so than with guitar.
1: Yes. I think guitar requires, initially requires more physical strength. I remember when I was trying to learn to play bar chords, I, I didn't think I'd ever be able to do it.
0: Same. I, I felt the same way.
1: I was only 12, mind you. So, I started um,
0: playing guitar around the same age, and uh, I also found bar chords difficult at the beginning. But then you learn them, and they're the easiest thing in the world.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's just a matter of how you place your hand and how you hang on.
0: You have to push down hard enough as well. Yeah. That can take a bit of getting used to. So when you were early on learning to play the guitar, what what guitar music were you listening to or what what attracted you to that instrument?
1: <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, do you remember the the comic called The Archies, you know, with Jughead and yeah. Betty?
0: Veronica? Yeah, yep, I'm familiar.
1: There was a version of the Archies called the Cave Archies, and all the, all the Archies were dressed as cavemen. <laughs> and At the end of one of the Cave Archies episodes, Jughead and Archie and the girls were sitting around a fire in a cave wearing caveman clothes, and Jughead had what was called a plink-a-plunk, And the plink plunk was just a guitar that was square instead of having rounded edges, so it looked like, you know, before man had invented the wheel. (laughs) And, uh, And I had this idealized, romanticized vision of how great it would be to be able to just carry your instrument around and pull it out and play it by the campfire. And it was nothing like the piano. And that's when I wanted to learn to play the guitar. That was the moment in which I, w- I went to my mom and I said, I want to take lessons.
0: Did you ask for guitar lessons or plink-a-plunk lessons? <laughs> <laughs> I asked for
1: guitar lessons. And uh, I got them from a woman named Mrs. Morrissey, Alice Morrissey, who taught out by Unicity in Winnipeg. Unicity being a mall from the 1980s. Okay. At the edge of the western part of the city's urban sprawl. She taught me the acoustic guitar, and then we moved on to the electric, and I, I was with her for about three years, and then I wanted to well, actually it was less than three years I wanted to play kiss, and um, I, when she tried to teach me a kiss song, I, I realized that she'd made a mistake in transposing one of the chords incorrectly, and I thought, if I can't count on her to get that right, then this is not the right teacher for me) <laughs> and, so I stopped going to her. But, you know, I say that with enormous respect for her because, actually, it was only one chord that she wasn't quite getting. And it's the, not music that she was familiar with. She was, she was in her 70s when she was teaching. So and she was probably she,
0: doing you a favor by, by learning it. At <laughs> least as she, as she probably saw it.
1: <laughs> she, as I saw it, too. But, anyways, my... Uh, my guitar playing continued without a teacher after that. I haven't had a teacher since. But and I don't
0: suppose you'll be needing one now.
1: Probably not. I'm very grateful for my piano teacher, though, I'll tell you.
0: That's great. So prior to COVID, you were in the middle of a tour. Is that not right?
1: Uh, yeah, more or less. We uh, crashed the dummies had and toured for, together for a long, long time. And we, we had an invitation to come and play the Winnipeg Folk Fest uh, with the Winnipeg Symphony, sorry, about three years ago. Um, and so we reunited for that show. And we had such a great time that we were like, maybe we should do this more often.
0: So, which members of the band were reuniting in this particular yeah, instance?
1: All of the original members that would have been on the God Chumble's Feet record, with the exception of Benjamin Darwell, our harmonica player, who. Yeah. Uh, quit Crash Nismis many years ago to to do his own thing. I think he was unhappy being a side person and wanted to be the front person in his own show. So,
0: Which he now does.
1: Which he now does, yes. I haven't talked about it in a long time. I'm not sure what he's up to these days.
0: Doing his Son of Dave thing.
1: Yes, no doubt.
0: So the band got together for this one yeah. event?
1: Uh, yes, and that so that would be Mitch Dorge, Ellen Reed, myself, and my brother, Dan Roberts.
0: And so then how did the tour come about?
1: Um, Well, because the the show went well, and because we got such a great response from the city, it was pretty easy to go ahead and talk to my old booking agents and get any number of tours lined up. And we began doing three-week stints where we'd go out and play as many shows as we could in that period of time and then take a break and do it again a couple of months later. And um, it was going very well. We had, and we had, an, uh, we had a big American tour and a big European tour all lined up for this year. But, of course, that had to be canceled and then rescheduled. And then it's, we're now on, on rescheduling for a third time. I frankly have no idea, not even a clue as to when that's going to change.
0: So you're rescheduling but tentatively?
1: Um, well, yeah, rescheduling, knowing full well that it may not be possible for us to even leave the country. <laughs>
0: right. <laughs> Today's episode of Quarter Rest is sponsored by SoapShare. I'm really excited to talk to you all about this amazing new brand. Okay, so the average North American has at least one bar of soap sitting in their shower. But how often is that bar actually used? Be honest, people, probably no more than once a day, maybe a bit more in the case of multi-person households. That means, most of the time, your soap is just sitting there in your shower, doing nothing. Well, Soapshare, which is kind of like Uber for soap, puts your soap to work for you, so you can monetize it. No more idle bars of soap. Here's how it works. Buy a bar of soap and register it on the Soapshare app or website. There, you'll enter information about your soap, such as the brand, scent, and size. That's it. Now you're part of the SoapShare family, and for only $8 a month, you have full access to this revolutionary service. So here's how that works. Open your soap, lather up, and have a great shower. Then when you're done, toss that bar of soap in the mail so it can be passed along to the next SoapShare customer. The following day, you'll have a new bar waiting for you in your mailbox, community dropbox, or PO box. Just remove it from the packaging, inspect for fungus, and rinse away any remaining hairs from the soap, and you're good to go. Best of all, you'll be making upward of nine cents a day. You will have, in effect, transformed your shower soap from a cost to a revenue stream. I've been using this service lately, and it is just fantastic to wash my body with used soap. Soap Share
1: sell your soap to the devil.
0: So you've lived in the U.S. for some time.
1: Yes, I uh, I moved here in the late '90s, and then I met a woman who became my beautiful wife. And uh, she, though she's from Detroit, she had lived in New York City for a long time ever since she graduated from high school. And I was living there at the time. And because and because we got married, I you know just stayed. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that'll happen.
1: I've been here ever since. Seriously, considering leaving Canada if Trump gets reelected.
0: You mean leaving the United States?
1: I'm sorry, <laughs> leaving the United States. Yeah.
0: I was going to say maybe uh, maybe Canada's not looking so bad at this point.
1: Oh my God. Well, I've always loved Canada. I never didn't like it, and I didn't ever want to leave Canada in particular. I just happened to love New York City. Unfortunately, okay. it is not what it once was. And Can so, you talk
0: about that change a little bit?
1: Yeah, absolutely. My neighborhood, Soho, uh, when I first moved here, there was little bodegas and, and you know, Jewish delis and affordable groceries and, you know, funky little shops, you know, did their own design work or curating of objects or whatever it was that they did, art galleries, uh, all that stuff. And, Uh, There were no tourists, and the neighborhood was quiet. Now, it's a massive, big retail neighborhood. There's hardly any grocery stores left, (laughs) hardly any people left, tenants, and the tourists just choke Broadway. Mm. I mean, this summer, they're not. (laughs) No. But uh, it's just become insane. And the, the character of the neighborhood has been entirely destroyed. It's not the creative vibrant place it once was at all. And so I would say that then when they speaking about New York. Uh, so know, it's become
0: very gentrified.
1: Absolutely, totally and completely gentrified. You know, in part, what has happened is um, the real estate market has just changed everything, as it has in so many cities, but it, particularly in New York. Are all kinds of people who see New York real estate as a as an investment strategy, as opposed to a place to go and you know buy real estate that they then either inhabit or as residentially or or otherwise. You know? mm-hmm. And um, all kinds of uh, you know newly minted billionaires from the so- former Soviet Union, uh, for example often put their money into real estate here because there's no history of a stable, uh, you know, banking system there mm-hmm. so they do their money safer here. That's just one example. And people from around the world come with all kinds of money and buy, you know, city blocks if, if they want to, in the case of, you know, oil rich people. yep, From uh, the Middle East and from Europe and from, it's just incredible how much money got poured in to the real estate economy and it just drove up all the prices. So for example, right now I'm in a loft and I have rent control, which means that they can't just hike my rent arbitrarily whenever they want. Right. So I've been here for twenty years and I pay like, you know, twenty five hundred dollars a month for a, a really big apartment. I mean New York City is Notorious for tiny apartments.
0: Little closets.
1: Yes, I have this huge two thousand square foot loft. Wow. Now my neighbors pay fifteen thousand dollars a month for their space, and it's the same space. Only they're not as nice as my space because they were subdivided by the guy who, by the company who bought the building in the last few years, and and they put you know drywall up over all the brick and subdivided the big spaces into smaller units is so that they, you know, be more attractive to potential buyers. Mm-hmm. Basically, you know, made them worse and then and, and charged more. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the general tendency um, in Soho and in New York.
0: Do you still find yourself loving New York? Is it still attractive
1: to stay? Well, you know, um, yes, every now and then I go out and I'm I mean, it's almost impossible not to be struck by the variety of, of humanity that inhabits this city. Um, but I don't have the same kind of feeling that I did when I lived here 20 years ago. And I would just go for walks for hours at a time. And there was always interesting things to look at, and things that you just wouldn't come across in other cities.
0: I think you've said in other interviews that uh, living in New York influenced the sound of, uh, of the Crash Test music that you were making in the late 90s, like the album Give Yourself a Hand. Is that, is that so?
1: Yeah, that is true, actually. I, I lived in Harlem uh, because a friend of mine had an apartment up there. It would be no problem for white Brad to live in Black Harlem. And in fact, that was true, although I really did feel out of place. And uh, um, all, even though I, I felt out of place, I was also uh, struck by the atmosphere. It was certainly a part of town that I had never thought about living in. And um, it, it, it definitely got into my blood and um, affected the, the music that I wrote at that time, that particular record. You're exactly right. And then uh, when we went to tour for the record, I went, I went on an antidepressant at that time, which completely uh, changed my incredibly anxious and depression oriented personality. And I decided it would be a good idea to uh, wear a pink dress and a cowboy hat. (laughs) Pink feather boa.
0: (laughs) I think I've seen a few pictures actually. Really? I think so.
1: I have a picture of one of that time. There were no cell phone cameras then, so there weren't a lot of pictures. Um,
0: Mercifully I suppose.
1: (laughs) Uh, Yeah it was uh, really quite a fun record, quite a different uh, approach to music than what we had taken up until that point. Strikingly different. Yes indeed and I, I think we won some new fans and lost some old fans. (laughs) <laughs> but I think that 's what happens when you tr- you don 't write the same record every time you know i I never wanted to write the same record twice because it just didn't interest me to, to repeat myself you know but I think some bands work towards the sound and keep it whereas for me, what was interesting about being able to write songs and record them was that you you know I could explore a variety of genres
0: i've always been struck by the crash test dummies catalog. And and this is something that I appreciated in in all the time that I've been familiar with the music is that every album is strikingly different than the last one. Uh, You really never did write the same record twice. I mean, maybe the first two records are perhaps the most similar, although still rather different. But after that, it's like you've, you've gone in many different directions and I think that's interesting.
1: Yeah. It's much more fun from my point of view and um, certainly tries our fans in terms of, you know, who likes what what we're doing and who doesn't like what we've moved on to. But um, we definitely have a core audience of people who love all our stuff and know all the words to every song. And they, I know this because they come to our shows and they're there in the first row and they lip sync the words to, Tunes so obscure, I can't even remember what records they're on. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost unnerving. They know my work so well that I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to like forget my own lyrics and they'll, <laughs> they'll catch on <laughs> as they lip sync and watch me fumble. That doesn't usually happen, though.
0: When you look back on those earlier records, is there one that really stands out to you as being one that you're particularly proud of? Or is there one that you look back on and you're like, oh, that one was not the best. I could have done better.
1: Well, you know, I would say that uh, our first record sucks, except that Superman's song is very good. and
0: uh, <laughs> That's actually not my favorite, believe it or not. Oh, really? My favorite is the first track, the Winter Song.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, thank you. You know, that is a that is a good song. I agree. But for the most part, that record was done on a very low budget with very little time. I had no experience. Those were the first songs I ever wrote. And so naturally for me, it's a record that doesn't stand out as my favorite one. Yeah. Far from it. Although, um, the success of Superman's song, in canada was so enormous that you know i'd be biting the hand that fed me to you know renounce it entirely i mean i th- i think that uh i think that it that the songs are are you know they're okay they're all right i i just i think the second record was just leaps and bounds better i agree and um you know you're one of the few canadians who does agree with me on that yeah. <laughs> the first record and see the second record as the band you know when they sold out and went big internationally which is an odd thing about canada if you're popular in canada but not in america then canadians are wont to say oh well you know they're not really they never really did make it <laughs> you know like you acquire a certain legitimacy if you make if, if you're popular in america but of course you know it's a double-edged sword because when you do gain that popularity and you get that kind of credibility, you also get backlash. And as a matter of fact, there was an enormous backlash against Crash Test Dummies after our first record. That first record it did extremely well, and when we put the second record out, um, my hometown newspaper ran a review by some guy in Florida. They were too chicken to have their own reviewer write the story. They found some article where this guy panned the record. Our hometown. And uh, after that, it was just an uphill battle. Radio didn't play the single uh, very much at all. Mm-mm-mm. And then it, it basically just went off the charts and, uh, like, disappeared very quickly. And it was over. And the record was over in Canada. But it was just beginning in America. Mm. And and when it really exploded and started climbing the charts, all the charts and not just the college charts, suddenly Canada was like, oh, we... we we're sorry. <laughs> could you please, please, please release another single and, and make another video so that we can have something to play? Because they weren't going to go back and play the actual hit. Mm-hmm. They buried it already. They flushed it down the toilet. They were quite happy with that. But now they wanted to participate in the um, popularity of the band, and they couldn't do that unless we gave them s- some other, you know, something else to promote. So did you ma- oblige? We did. We made a, a single, a, a video for "Swimming in Your Ocean." Okay. In the single from that record, and it was not—it wasn't a single anywhere else in the world, and the video wasn't shown in any other market. It was just for Canada.
0: For much music?
1: Yes. And that's w- what being a Canadian musician can be like. You know, I mean, I got the hell out of Dodge when I figured out that Winnipeg was tree press and decided to shit all over me. And, uh, you know, I love the town, but it was just stupid what was going on.
0: Do you have any insight? So, first of all, I'm actually, I live in Canada, but I'm sort of the reverse situation of yourself. I grew up in the United States, and I live in Canada now. That's so maybe, maybe that's why I'm a little bit more objective about those first two records.
1: I you. Uh, yes. Absolutely. I heard
0: God Shuffled His Feet first. That was the one I first uh, grew attached to, and I listened to and, and bought, and, and very much enjoyed uh, The Ghosts That Haunt Me after listening to God shuffle His Feet. And I never liked it as much. I always thought, well, this is a good record, but you know, it's, it's the first record. The second one is, is where the band hit its stride. And I still think that. Um, but it's true. I find a lot of Canadians, even now, even you know, younger ones such as myself, they know that first record the best. And they associate Crash Test Dummies with Superman song. Now, I, I'm curious. Do you have any insight as to why the sort of Canadian music establishment turned on you in the way it did?
1: My American agent, the guy who books all my shows, our shows rather, sorry, in America, obviously, he has said to me, Brad, Canada eats their own. And he, hmm. he's seen it many times. And um, artists that do well in America often face backlash. Uh, and we're not the first ones. I wish I could tell you what the other bands were that he was thinking of when he said that i don't know who they were possibly the bare naked ladies i'm not sure i don't know
0: they're still quite quite popular in canada yeah maybe not at the time maybe there was a backlash initially there probably was
1: i think there was some kind of backlash at some point you know and i shouldn't even talk about that because i i don't want to spread anything negative about the naked ladies i think they're great We we played with them many times when I was a young man, and um, I always really enjoyed their company. Really nice nice guys, and always put on a great show. Many, many times, and then suddenly they eclipsed us. It was we that were hoping for them.
0: (laughs) Funny how that happens. Yes. So after God shuffled his feet, you released A Worm's Life, which is a very different record than the previous two. Mm-hmm. I've always been, I've always found this record hard to, hard to peg because on the one hand, it does somewhat continue the sounds of the previous album, but it also introduces this kind of harder edged guitar sound. What I, I've always been curious, what kind of sound were you going for on this record? Were you trying to, to emulate something? Were you trying to, uh, grab on to the zeitgeist of what was going on in music at the time or was this just what brad was feeling at the moment
1: our first two records were written on an acoustic guitar and they were very much oriented towards the acoustic guitar when i was first got interested in playing the guitar although i started on the acoustic what i really wanted to do was play the electric guitar and up until a worm's life i'd really not written any music that showed that I could even play that way or write that way or think that way. Um, So that was definitely all about me wanting to do a guitar oriented record, something that I had not done up until Hmm. I had shied away from the electric guitar before then, because, you know, when I was started to write it, we were just coming out of the 1980s and it was all about hair bands and metal. And, and I, I didn't see myself fitting into that world at all particularly with the singing style. It was such a screamer kind of a style. Very as,
0: high-pitched vocals as well.
1: Yes, exactly. And uh, as much as I enjoy it, I certainly couldn't do that. And, and it doesn't suit me in really in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it took me a while to get around to wanting to make a guitar, uh, a record that had that much electric guitar on it. Um, and indeed, that's, that's what I was was shooting for on, on the third record. I also just didn't want to just repeat what we had done on the second record. Of course. Um, So the idea was to make a, a record that was a little bit harder sounding.
0: And then you got in trouble with MTV. You want to talk about that a little bit? I know you made a music video for the single, he liked to feel it, which I have to say is a, a brave choice for a single. And a very brave choice for a music video. Do you, do you want to elaborate on what happened there a little bit?
1: You know, ironically, I will, I will say this: all of the videos Crash the has ever made were conceived by Ellen Reed, our keyboard player, hmm. or or Kevin Much, who did our album cover, um, or, or in many cases, sort of a collaboration between the two. Hmm. I didn't uh, know that. I'm not sure about the collaboration part can't quote me i'd have to think about that am not sure if we did but anyways um the first video that we ever had a budget for of any sort was he liked to feel it on that third record and, uh, yes it
0: looks like you, it looks like you had a pretty good budget
1: yes and they well they they were very concerned about coming up with a video that was competitive in the united states and looked you know looked as good as it needed to look the record company chose that song as a single not us and the record company chose that video concept and the record company a-okayed everything about it you know including what became regarded as like problematic from the point of mtv which i really find bizarre i mean it is it's uh It's a video that has a kid being dragged around by his tooth, literally, you know, hanging from a crane and stuff. It's all done with a sense of humor.
0: It's very, it's very like Looney Tunes cartoon. Uh, You know, it feels very silly.
1: Yes. Well, it was supposed to be silly. So I don't know why they took that seriously and had a problem with it. I really don't. I can't even begin to tell you what went on there. It certainly didn't help the record sales, <laughs> and that, that record did not have anything like the commercial success that our previous one did. Right. And indeed, no record did after that. That was by far our biggest record. Right. And I count my lucky stars, you know, because our first record, I was inexperienced, and on our second record, I had a chance to actually show what I could do, and it just about, you know didn't go anywhere as I explained earlier and then it did Mm. and when it broke I was so relieved and so happy that something I was really proud of was getting this attention because I outgrew my our first record before we'd even finished touring I realized that I could do a lot better Mm. and that the band could do a lot better So I I consider myself extremely lucky to have had the biggest success of our career was with that particular record, because I really am proud of it. And I think there's some tracks on there that I've never bested. I think that the track God Shoveled His Feet, for example, is probably the best thing I've ever done in terms of lyrics and melody and the arrangement. Um,
0: I 100% agree.
1: Yeah, I feel like I hit a home run with that one.
0: And yet, ironically, that wasn't the big hit.
1: No, it was, mm, mm, mm. and that, the reason that song became a hit was because uh, there was a radio station down in Atlanta, Georgia, and I, I can't remember their call numbers right now, which is very embarrassing because they broke our record, and I, it's, I'm, but I'm drawing a blank. Anyways, they started playing us and and they got all these calls. From listeners, and they would be like, "Who's the guy with the deep voice?" So when the record label heard that there was radio station was getting calls, they were very interested, and the record label rep looked at the numbers and saw that we were starting to sell records in that market. And now the funny thing is, you'd think, "Well, it, Of course you did." But in fact, record sales don't always follow from airplay. Right. And in this case, they followed quite briskly. And as soon as the president of our American record company, Arista records or Arista, Mm -hmm. uh, Clive Davis is his name. um, As soon as he learned this, he put us on the front burner, (laughs) not the back burner. And all of a sudden uh, every show we played, there was a record company person there, seeing how the show was going, seeing how we're doing, seeing what we need. And, uh, you know, they poured the cash on us and they drove us up the chart and charts until we were number, we got to number two. Clive Davis was so mad that we didn't get to number one. You know, Who be, was beating you? Oh, I can't even remember. Probably Whitney Houston. <laughs> wow, okay. Who was, uh, who was our label mate, by the way.
0: Oh, okay. Uh,
1: I did many a command performance for Clive Davis with the the Whitney Houston family on stage. Those were the days, I'll tell you. I can imagine. Yeah. It's hard to imagine, even for me, what a crazy time that was. And then it failed off.
0: (laughs) Do you think if you had released another album with a similar sound that you could have, that lightning would have struck twice, or do you think it was the right move to move on, try new things?
1: I don't know if anything would have made a difference. To be honest, I uh, my belief is that Arista is a record company that, for the most part, specialized in you know Whitney Houston and that kind of brand of R and B as they called it then, mm-hmm. um, and that that they weren't a company that was really interested in our long term career. They they saw that they could make money on that second record. And when the getting was good, they got it, but they weren't interested in following that up. Mm. If we were their only act or one of their biggest acts, um, that would have been one thing. But the other people on, that were on that label were people like Whitney Houston and Kenny G and P Diddy, and, you know, all of these names that are just massive. Yeah. And that's where they wanted to put their budget. That's not a, not crashing studies, right? So
0: not not the the songs about pulling kids pulling their own teeth out in bizarre ways.
1: Yeah, I don't really think anything would have made a difference. I think that um, we were on a on a label that just wasn't all that interested in our long term
0: career. Mm. And so eventually, you parted ways with the label.
1: Yes. After the fourth record, which followed on the heels of a worm's life, one you were just we were just talking about, um, that was a very stressful time. Uh, the record label were very you know the, we were signed directly to a Canadian label, not to an American label. so uh, they were um, they were under a lot of pressure to recapture the American market. And when the third record didn't go well, um, the record company's A&R department basically got all over me. About, and they were extremely intrusive in the whole creative process. I turned in like 30 songs that they said, no, nah, no, nah, not so much. Like thirty songs later, and they, I still hadn't done anything that they liked or wanted to use. Um, and that's when I completely changed gears and started writing the, the music that ended up appearing on that record, which sounds like you know, sounds nothing like our much more rock-oriented third record, and sounds much more. You know, I, I don't want to use I don't want to use the word hip hop, but it certainly is you know more funky.
0: <laughs> yeah, funky electronic.
1: Yeah. Exactly,
0: Synthesizers.
1: And uh, I'm really proud of that record, too. I think that's my f- second favorite record of ours. And I would say God Shoveled Those Feet is my, my first favorite. And then I would say the best record I've written, period, ever, since, yeah, is the last record we put out called Ooh La La. And it didn't achieve any kind of big success, nor did any of the other records that I put out on my own. After we got off BMG. Um, but I think it has, it's the most consistent thing I've ever written. The, the lyrics are uniformly high quality, mm. whereas on Godchild's Feet, they're a little hit and miss at times. I was a much more mature writer by the time I did that record. Of course. culmination of a lifetime of writing. I also made it with a guy, Stuart Lerman, who's an absolute genius of a producer and who really um was instrumental in bringing the whole thing to life
0: so it was mostly you on that record am Um, i not mistaken
1: it was it was me but it was also ellen singing backups as she always does and dan was on there on bass Um, our original drummer mitch dorge was not on that record but it was um I think it was and is my best work. And, and, you know, I was very surprised to find that a lot of fans know that record. When we play shows, they, they you know, I can see they know the lyrics. <laughs> and there's one particular song on that record called Heart of Stone, which I do a completely acoustic version of during our live shows for yeah. the encore. And it's a tearjerker. And I literally every night I see women cry <laughs> when I sing that song. I'm not kidding. And it's, I can believe it. And, it. and it gets an enormous round of applause always. So I, I, that's something I'm very proud of and very happy about, that this late into my writing career, or that late into my writing career. I, I, I could move an audience to, to that extent with a – you know, because – with something they've never heard before. Right, because
0: a lot of the people in the audience presumably have never heard the song.
1: Exactly. And, and so if, it, yeah, it gets that kind of visceral response. In fact, I think it, in a way it sounds even better than it does on the record in a very stripped-down acoustic way because it's a very intimate lyric and, and uh, it really comes to life without without any band at all, which I think is a good sign for a song. If a song can sound... That's always been my philosophy. If you can play a song stripped down to just one instrument for an accompaniment and one voice and hold people's interest, uh, then you got a song. And anything else is just, you know, something second best that's dressed up with production.
0: Do you have a few of those songs that you think hold up well with just you and a guitar or some sort of accompaniment?
1: Yeah, I think actually most of the songs that I've written work that way. Superman song certainly does mm-hmm mm certainly does yep it would be a stretch to make anything off that third record with the exception of a couple of the acoustic guitar songs that were stripped down to begin with uh,
0: maybe my own sunrise
1: yeah well that's a natural and in fact, my own sunrise to me that was kind of like the mm mm of that record and I was they didn't Use it as the single for that reason. It was. Such That's what amazing. I
0: would have chosen.
1: I would have chosen it too. I don't know <laughs> what. They did.
0: So you but, aren't. So you weren't involved in that process of choosing the singles, is that right? Well, they,
1: they consult the band, but it's ultimately up to them. Yeah. I mean, it's their. It's their investment, right? It's all their of money. Course. So they're not gonna. They nat- they naturally will want to have control over what that song is going to be.
0: How has your approach to singing changed over the years? I think, you know, if I listen to your records and I'm, I'm unusually familiar with your, with your catalog, with the crash test Dummies albums, um, I would be one of those people in the front row singing along to most songs. Um, and you know, I've, I think you can hear an evolution in the way your voice sounds and the way you approach singing. Can you, can you talk about that a
1: little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, (laughs) In the first place, I, I am the lead singer of "Gracious Dummies by default. I never considered myself somebody, I never considered myself a singer, period. Um, whenever I tried to sing along to records when I was a kid, like Elton John, I was a ho- hopeless because I don't have that range. And I didn't really understand that. Now, when I was 14 and I couldn't sing along to Elton John because my voice was too low, I did not understand that my voice was too low and that, you know, if he sang the, the same song in a lower key or in a lower register, that I'd be perfectly able to sing quite well along with that. But I did not realize that. And I thought that my voice was, you know, it would sound good in a sea shanty or something. <laughs> <laughs> You know, but I didn't really see it as being a voice that you'd pair with popular music. Um, and uh, then when I started writing songs, I, I couldn't find anybody who would sing them with the kind of emphasis and nuance that I was hearing in my head. So I eventually just said, okay, I guess I have to sing these things myself and hope for the best. And then... Who knew it was precisely my voice that attracted so much attention? Um, and, you know, a large part of the success of Superman's song has to do with the fact that the vocal is so prominent. And, of course, it, it's prominent in part because I have a great, big, deep voice and, and, and partly because uh, it's an acoustic piece with strings and piano. And so there's more room in the mix for a vocal.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a very striking voice.
1: Uh, you know, the I, I would go on and, and say that um, on the first record, I, I had a lung infection. So a lot of those songs, I sang sharp. Not flat, but sharp. Because my voice, I had this, like, imagine a, a bottle with, and you blow and it makes a sound, a, a musical note. I and mean, then you put some water in it and the, the, the pitch of the note changes. It becomes higher. <laughs> yep. That's what was going on in my lungs full of mucus. <laughs> I just couldn't sing like, you know, I couldn't sing the right note. I, I kept just hitting a higher register than what I was aiming for. Totally annoying. i have to st- go
0: back and listen for that.
1: And then when we made our second record, I was running into the same thing. I had really bad asthma in those days, and, mm. I, and my voice just did not want to open up. Uh, but I had a chance to do a better job on singing on the second record, and so my voice did improve. By the time we got to the fourth record, that's when everything changed. That give that keep your keep a lid on things record. So, yep. uh, and on that record, I discovered my falsetto, which I didn't think I had, or, that I, or if I did, that it was useful. Right. <laughs> um, and I also discovered that I could invest my voice with attitude, <laughs> something that I had never really considered doing before. I, I into- think that's
0: a good description for the the change in singing style.
1: Yeah, I I, I think that. Um, I'm glad you think so too, because uh, it changed a lot, and it was, and it changed because of the music that I was writing and hearing in my head, which demanded a completely different approach. Um, and in fact, Ellen Reed, our backup singer, who who sang, you know, um, who who also sang the odd uh, song. As a lead vocalist and not just a backup vocalist, she also went from leaps and bounds. When Ellen heard me singing in falsetto and investing a kind of a new attitude into my voice, she also stepped up to the plate. I had her sing lead on several songs, and yep. her and her approach also changed radically. And
0: yeah, she sung very softly, very kind of sultry style.
1: Exactly. Which is, you know, and she used to think that she was. She used to say, "My voice sounds like Ethel Merman." <laughs> you know, I was like, "Who is Ethel Merman?" <laughs> I had no idea. Of course, it's you know this woman from with this big, deep, kind of full-throated ah, da, 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 kind it's of. It's like mu- a
0: musical theater singer, right? Uh,
1: yes, exactly. And and Ellen did kind of sound like Ethel Merman, but she just hadn't accessed her inner voice and that sounds really flaky. She hadn't accessed her inner voice, but it's true there. I think that 99% of singing is about confidence. And I've watched kids who were trying to sing, you know, when, uh, when I was a guitar teacher uh, and the ones that could do it were the ones that had no inhibitions And when my inhibitions went away about singing, and you know, it did take a few records, (laughs) I was completely changed the whole picture. I don't think I could go back to the way I used to sing.
0: All right. So obviously COVID has interrupted the live music industry and everyone has felt the effects of that. At some point, presumably things are going to go back to normal, we hope, and touring can resume and things of that nature will go back to the way they were. I assume that you want to finish this tour that you are on with the band. But does the band have any plans to maybe make another record or do anything of that sort?
1: Um, The band does not have any plans to make another record. I'm not sure when the COVID virus thing is going to be solved to the point where I'll feel comfortable going out and touring again. People seem to be more optimistic than I am about this, but at least in America, I just don't see... Short of a vaccination or cure of some sort, I don't see this virus going away at all. People are not willing to wear masks. They're not willing to live the way they have to live in order to make this happen. And uh, it's obvious to the rest of the world because nobody's letting America into their countries. (laughs) Europe and Canada are too. Yeah.
0: (laughs) There's a little bit of mask resistance here, but it's not as bad. It's not nearly as
1: bad. Yeah. Well, and here it's like a political tribe. It's like, if you, if you wear a mask, then you're a Democrat and you're, you're for the nanny state and the rest of it. And if you don't wear a mask then you're a Trumper and you're about freedom and opening the economy as soon as possible, because after all people could die from not, you know, having a job. Yeah. And of course it's devastating to the economy. I'm not making light of that, but it is but it's, uh, it's I don't have any confidence that we're going to get back to any kind of normality anytime soon. And uh, <laughs> I mean, it would be nice to think that we'll tour again, but I don't see it happening. Well, it's definitely not happening this year. Yeah. When we've projected it into next year as uh, you know, the time that we will hopefully make up the American and the European dates. Um, but it's just slated in there, you know, Uh, with the hopes that by them, things will be better. I occasionally see on, in my Facebook messages, people asking questions about, you know, so are there any tickets left to the show and blah, blah, blah? It's like, do you not realize that we're probably not going to be able to do that show (laughs) at this point? Like, do you think that things are going to suddenly open up and we'll be in your town? It's not going to happen.
0: Especially big concerts,
1: yeah. Oh, and uh, it's uh, and as a matter of fact, uh, one of the greatest way to transmit the virus, aside from packing a whole bunch of people into a house like a bunch of sardines, is to sing. Yeah, <laughs> transmission through singing uh, is like pretty big time, and and so I would think similarly that the singer who has to st- take deep gulps of air would be you know. <laughs> equally susceptible to both transmission and receiving the virus. So I'm in no hurry at all to get back on the road anytime soon unless the coast is totally clear. And I don't even have to think about this because I don't want to fall sick on the road. No. Co- I don't want, I mean, there's just so many nightmare scenarios. And, and in the meantime, I for I have to say, this whole quarantine thing has treated me really well. I love the great indoors. Never really been much of an outdoors guy. I uh because coincidentally enough I decided okay, I'm going to finally learn to play the piano. Um I have this task. When I wake up every day in the morning, I have a goal and it's to practice. Because I'm loving it. I'm getting better all the time. And it's almost like a recipe for like, oh, so you wanted to learn the to play the piano, but you didn't think you had time. Well, <laughs> here's
0: a whole lot of time.
1: Here's a whole lot of time on a silver platter. So I'm really very grateful that I, that I have this interest at this point in my life, that it's rejuvenated my interest in music at all because mm. I had flagged a great deal, especially when I stopped writing music. And, mm. um, so I'm, uh, I'm very fortunate that the whole, COVID thing has not really affected me in nearly an adverse a way as it has many people. Yeah. I mean, yes, I did lose a whole bunch of money, like the whole band did. So mm-hmm. uh, I'm not impoverished. I still get some uh, money from uh, royalty checks. Uh, and that continues to come in during the COVID virus because it doesn't require people buying records and or... Uh, Streaming is the big thing, so all of yep. my income is oriented towards writing royalties, and those are just going up because there's so many more places to collect them now. Mm. Of course, that wasn't the case for a long time when the internet first sort of came around and, and music online came around. It, it initially destroyed the music economy, but. And it certainly changed it. It certainly changed it. Yes, it's complete. It's evolved into a completely different piece.
0: How do you think? Like, what is the biggest difference between the music industry now versus when
1: you first got into the industry? Record industry used to be glutted with money, and now it's not glutted with money like it was. Although, you know, I can't really say that with any confidence because I don't actually know what's going on in record labels in 2020. Uh, and I don't pay very much attention to music on that's, you know, on the radio these days. There's nothing there for me that I that I've heard that that I would care to listen to on any sort of regular basis. Mm-hmm. I mean I wish I'm sure there's all kinds of interesting music being generated out there, but I have no idea what it is or where to find. Do you feel that way?
0: I I do sometimes feel that way. I'm certainly not that drawn to what's on the radio. And in terms of finding new music, it's difficult. I find you have to know people and have sort of that word of mouth.
1: Yeah, it's interesting.
0: And if you're devoting yourself to other things, like playing piano where you you get to hear all the music you want, but you're making it yourself, that's the the old-fashioned way of listening to music. That's right that's how people did it for the longest time. You wanted to hear music. You were You had to make it or you had to find someone you knew and ask them politely to make it for you. (laughs) So if, you know, if you're, if you're not listening to music that actively, and if that is no longer uh, the kind of activity or the, an activity that brings you the same kind of joy that it once did, then, you know, it's okay to just kind of listen to what you know you like and, not go seeking the new
1: yeah i feel i feel like i'm uh, I'm finding the new, but it's just been around for a long long time mm. <laughs> longer than me, and one of the things that aside from the fact that the piano is just a very sexy instrument, one of the things that draw, draw drew me to it is that um, there is music for the piano in. Fades. I mean, we're talking centuries of keyboard music. Yep. Uh, and even before there was a piano, there was the harpsichord and the right. so, and I And there's really something magical about opening up a book of sheet music and seeing on the page the notes that were written by a composer 300 years ago. And there they are and you get to bring them to life again and with mm. the help and guidance you can make it sound pretty good and you and i mean there there is so much repertoire if you if you don't like baroque music <laughs> there's plenty of classical music if you don't like classical music there's plenty of romantic music and if you don't like romantic music there's plenty of Modernism and postmodernism and every freaking thing you can imagine, like, and it's all out there. And it's, and you know, unlike many other instruments, the piano is something where you, you don't have to play with somebody else in order to make it add up to something. Like, absolutely, instruments are solo instruments, or even the guitar. You know, you got to sing along.
0: Yeah,
1: otherwise you just except the classical guitar, which is a different ballgame. But um,
0: but very hard to to get good at.
1: Oh my gosh, these people that play Bach on the guitar just absolutely boggle my mind.
0: Yeah, I, a piece the, that is that is that that a beginner can learn on piano takes years of practice to be able to play on
1: the guitar. Yes, you're one of the few people who understands that. <laughs> well, maybe <laughs> not the <a> few, but <laughs> you're exactly right, and. Um, I just love I just love the fact that I can well I, the other thing about that's so great about learning the piano right now is that YouTube exists. Mm. You can go on there and you can find any piece of music in the freaking world that you'd ever want to listen to and it's there somewhere. Yep. And and then which means you know in my case I've compiled playlists based on sheet music collections I have, like Hmm. Fox, Preludes, and Fuse. Um, I have a playlist, which is all of the music that's in that book. And I have a playlist for, uh, I don't know, Schumann's album for the young. And, I mean, anytime I want to learn a piece of music, it's just like, go out there and find something, and there will be music for it, and you can even if you're not a great piano player, there's just so much material out there that's, that's playable and approachable. It's just fantastic.
0: And if you want to sing and use the piano to accompany yourself, you can do that as well. I mean, the piano is just such a, a versatile instrument.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. Anyhow, thank you so much for the, uh, the interview. Pleasure Absolutely. Pleasure to talk to you. And I'm sorry that it was uh, such a struggle to get off the ground, but I'm glad that we got it done.
0: I am very glad as well. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Yeah.
0: And that's our show for the week, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening. A big thank you to Brad Roberts for appearing on the show, giving his time, and for singing at the beginning. A big thank you to my producer, Alex McNeil, and to Graham Bell, who provided excellent artwork. If you enjoyed the show, here's what you can do. Head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. If you want to support the show, head on over to Patreon and do so. And if you are listening on YouTube, please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. And no matter what, tell your friends!
1: Tell your friends.